Hey everyone, it's Krista Bontrager and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go! Well, we're almost to the finish line here. Only have two podcasts left, this one and next week, and we're still in the epistles. We'll be picking up at 2 Thessalonians and going all the way through 1 Peter this week. We have a lot to cover. We'll just hit a few highlights of some things to think about on your journey this week through Route 66 and try to orient you toward the text so that you can just kind of have some things to look for along the way. One of the key threads that holds together the books of 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus is that these churches have been established by Paul and are undergoing situations where false teachers have come in, sometimes even in the name of Paul, and cause confusion among the congregation, Paul is trying to remedy that situation. In particular, in the books of Timothy and Titus, Paul is trying to work with these younger leaders to set up leadership structures so that people will be properly trained and and put in place so that they can continue the ministry of the gospel, the true gospel, long after Paul has left. And many of the qualifications uh, for elders and deacons are, are discussed in these books. And this is really going to be the, the leadership structure that will be used in the church throughout its history to help preserve the faithfulness of the gospel. And this really isn't a, an entirely new structure. It's not like Paul's coming up with some novel idea here. This is kind of a carryover from the way that the local synagogues would have been run at that time. And he's kind of adapting that leadership structure for the church. And then over time, it takes on an identity of its own as it morphs in with the times and various cultures and various places. But Paul is at least setting down that transcultural kind of core component that is going to guide the rudder of the ship of the church until Christ returns. The book of Philemon is an interesting one. It's a very short book. It's very small. You're going to read it in just one day. It's really only one chapter, but it provides a nice model for how the gospel is going to impact culture. And this cultural practice of slavery is, is very ancient. We shouldn't confuse it with our modern notions about slavery and the Civil War and, and that sort of thing. Slavery in the ancient world was, was a difficult life, but it was a very different kind of existence than what we experience through American history. But what we see in the book of Philemon is the transforming power of the gospel that when you become brothers and sisters in Christ with someone, that relationship should supersede the relationships that you have in this world in terms of social structure. The social structure of slavery, I think, in the book of Philemon is 
set on a path that it's not a permanent structure. It's not the will of God. And it will eventually be taken down through the Christian understanding that once we are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters and that that relationship hooks us together and it transcends our earthly situations. Now we'll get to the book of Hebrews later in the week. And the book of Hebrews is one of my all time favorite books. And I just love to teach on the book of Hebrews because it offers what I think is one of the most important, most critical interpretations of the Old Covenant. It's really hard to understand the Mosaic Law if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews is like a commentary on understanding the Mosaic Law, but through the lens of the New Covenant. Now, what's happening in the book of Hebrews is that a group of Jewish Christians, they've, they've come out of Judaism into Christianity. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's something that has come up that's pulling them back into Judaism. And the author of the book of Hebrews, which might be Paul, but there's some discussion among scholars about that. It's, it's not a super important issue. But what we see is the author sets up this case that Jesus is better than the Old Testament. He's better than Moses. He brings a better covenant. He is a better high priest. He is a better mediator of the covenant. He's even superior to the angels we see in chapter one. His sacrifice is better than that of the old covenant sacrifices. And he is the perfect temple or the perfect sanctuary. And the author is setting up this appeal for these these Jewish Christians who are being pulled back into Judaism, that, that maybe this is the way to go. That You know, it's hard when you've come out of a religion where there are a lot of very ornate rituals and practices, and you come into a situation where, well, we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. It's all in Jesus. We don't need to go to the temple anymore. It's all in Jesus. There's a sense in which you, you're feeling kind of lost because those rituals have, have ordered your life and have set the, the ebb and flow of your days and your weeks together. And now that that's missing, there's a, there's a void there. And what are you going to fill that with? These Jewish Christians were feeling that tension. And so the author says, it's going to, you know, it's going to be okay. Continue to assemble together. Continue to meet. You're in the right stream of truth. And Jesus is a better covenant, a better mediator, a better priest, and a better temple with a better sacrifice. That's really what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's just an incredibly important document in the biblical story. And it, it puts a nice little bow on the top of the package, if you will, of understanding the Old Covenant. And, and remember all of those laws that we read earlier in the year through that whole section of Exodus through Deuteronomy. Well, the book of Hebrews comes along to explain all of that from a New Covenant perspective. Next up is the book of James, another very important book written by one of the brothers of Jesus. And we might characterize this as New Covenant laws. Now, as Christians, we have a tendency 
to quote the verse from Romans that says we are no longer under law or under grace. Well, that's true. We are saved by grace. But that's not to say that the law has no connection to us. Jesus himself said when he went into heaven, he says, go into all the earth, preach the gospel and teach them the commands that I have taught you. So what are these commands? Well, our understanding of the law in the new covenant is very different than the old covenant. I would put it this way, that the laws have been simplified because now the gospel is going out into all the world, all these different cultures and and different languages and people from different backgrounds. So the law has been greatly simplified. And now it has become a law that is written on our hearts. And so when we see things like the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, that that is the law for us. But notice how heart focused the, the fruit of the spirit is. It's it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those are all things that have to come out of our hearts. And, and we ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. And so it's not a list of rules and regulations per se, as much as it is God wants to change our hearts so that our heart attitudes then are manifested in our life as behaviors. Well, the book of James really focuses on a lot of those behaviors. What should a Christian look like? How should they live? And so we might think of the book of James as kind of law-like in that fashion. But what's interesting about James is he says that what is the religion that God desires? He desires a religion that feeds the poor, that helps the widow and the orphan, and is focused on the members of the believing community to take care of them and making sure that the rich aren't given a place of prominence in that community or that the poor are folded into the background. God wants his people to take care of those who are vulnerable within the believing community. So what James is doing is he's kind of taking the teachings of Jesus and he's framing them in We might call it a wisdom tradition. Remember back in the Old Testament, all the wisdom books and all the wise sayings of of how to live. That's sort of what what James is doing here. It's kind of a mixture of, of those laws and the wisdom. And he's trying to paint a picture of how we're supposed to live. He It's important to... Remember, though, that that James and Paul are are both apostles. They both serve Jesus. And so their their messages are going to fit together at those crucial points and those cores. And as we believe in Jesus by faith, we also want to live in Jesus by faith, asking him to change our hearts, transform our lives so that we can enter into the believing community and help each other and, and take care of each other. Finally, this week, we're going to look at the book of First Peter. And the book of First Peter is addressed to a group of Christians who are suffering. This is a letter all about how to live in the midst of persecution. And it's difficult for us, quite frankly, in our situation to relate to persecution. Sure, there are trends within our country right now that are making things a little bit more sticky for us as Christians. But quite honestly, we do not suffer 
to the degree that these ancient Christians suffered. We do not suffer to the degree that Christians in many parts of the world suffer. We need to be circumspect about the fact that we still have a wide latitude of freedom. Yes, in the next 10 years, Christians could become second-class citizens. We could have to make some difficult decisions about how we live our life in a way that's consistent with Scripture, and that could push us to the margins of society. But that's going to take some time, and even so, it's hard to imagine at this point a scenario where we would be dying for our faith, where, where reading the Bible privately would become illegal. We're nowhere near where that is in other countries. And so we need to be careful about not highlighting our own persecution too much, that in this context, these people had to be ready to die for their faith. And life would get very difficult for the church in the first few hundred years of its history. And there was a price to be paid. But I think it's important to remember that these are the people that were closest to the events, historically speaking. They had access to eyewitnesses. And they would have known whether or not this was just a concocted mythology or whether this was, in fact, a reflection of true events and that their beliefs were founded and based on history. There are many people in our culture today, even entire religions that would like to tell us that our understanding of our history as Christians is corrupted and is, has been tainted and that our, our holy book, the, the Bible has been corrupted and, and, and tainted and, and is full of errors. One of the major problems I see with that viewpoint is that we have the blood of the martyrs for the first few hundred years of the church that cry out and in their testimony that they were willing to die for these truths. If this was a situation where the church had so corrupted the teachings and words of Jesus, these people would have known it. They were the ones who were closest to the events and they were the ones who were preserving the truth and dying for the truth. This church that Peter addresses, the Apostle Peter, he's encouraging them to persevere through their suffering. And for some of them, it may have cost them their lives, but they were willing to pay that price because they knew they were not dying for a lie. They were not dying for a corruption. They were not dying for a cleverly invented tale, but they were dying for a man who really lived who really died, and who saved them from their sins. Well, that's all for this week. I hope that you are persevering through this holiday season. I know it's tough because we're all very busy right now, but make the word your priority. Stay in it. We're almost to the end. I can't wait until we talk about the book of Revelation next week. We'll just tie up the whole Bible in such an awesome fashion because the book of Revelation is absolutely the perfect bookend to the book of Genesis. And we'll talk about that next time. We'll see you then. Bye for now.